This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Welcome to another episode of Business by the Numbers. I'm your host, Hunt Demarest, CPA with Parmelis and Associates. How do I look to get a loan, Hunt? Is a bank going to like what they see? What are the factors that I can improve to make myself more appealing to a bank? All these are great questions that shops ask me, so I wanted to take some time this week to dive into the loan and underwriting process a little bit more. The more you understand, the better you can prepare yourself to put yourself in a better position for banks to say yes and give you money. Before we get into that, I want to have a quick word from our partners who make business by the numbers possible. When you see your end of day balance and how you're tracking this month, it's much easier to enjoy that ball game or holiday. GetShopware.com. At Repair Shop of Tomorrow, the focus is on helping shop owners unlock their full potential by specializing in an expert coaching and marketing program designed for your specific shop. For more information about their programs, please visit them at RepairShopOfTomorrow.com. So you're looking to get a loan, and depending on what kind of loan and what the loan is for, there's going to be some differences, but the common idea behind loans is fairly simple. This is something that a lot of people overthink about, right? Because there's a lot of different kind of ideas or, hey, the banks are always going to look at this. Banks will never do this deal. But at the end of the day, banks lend money to people that have money, not people that need money. Um, Give credit to Reed on this one. It's one of my favorite quotes but it actually rings very true. A bank does not want to give money to someone that really needs it, right? They have no money. They have no sort of collateral. They just really have a great idea. It's an awesome story, and it's probably the people that need loans the most, but banks don't like those deals. Too risky, right? Banks want this slam dunk deal of, well, hey, I'm going to give Hunt money, but he has all that money in reserves to be able to cover this if he doesn't pay us. Now, the sweet spot and what ends up generally working out is somewhere in between. The big idea here is, right, the banks want to limit their risk. You know, the whole reason why they charge interest and why they give out money is they're trying to make money on you. This is not a charity. This is a business at the end of the day. And even if you have the assets to cover this, banks lose when they have to call the note. I hear this all the time. Well, Hunt, why would the bank not give me this deal for this real estate? I have, you know, $50,000 in equity and it's only a $100,000 note. Why would they not be jumping for joy on this? Because they don't want to foreclose, right? They don't want to repo something. They don't want to have to come and sell assets or inventory. If they have to do that, the bank's already lost, not only from kind of a judgment point of view on their end of things, but also from a financial aspect, right? It's That's why they don't ever give you dollar for dollar on an asset, because if they take over, they know they're not going to be in a primary market. They're not going to be able to take their time and sell it when they can. They're going to have to liquidate and get what money back they possibly can. And generally, it's you know 70 cents on a dollar, if not less. So what do banks actually care about? Banks really only care about two major things, cash flow and collateral. And so we're going to kind of dive into those two things, because at the end of the day, if you can kind of get the bank comfortable on your cash flow, as well as the collateral in a deal, you're more than likely going to actually close this and get this money. So let's start with the first one, which is cash flow here. Banks want to be able to see a history of being able to cover your debt service, whether it's past or future debt service. And generally, we look at something called a coverage ratio. So the general rate is a 1.25 coverage ratio. 
It means that you are able to show profit. You're able to have cash to be able to service your debt at a 1.25% ratio. So what that means is, let's say that you have a note that requires $100,000 in annual debt service, right? You total up the payments for the entire year. I need $100,000 in order to be able to cover this. The bank is not going to want to see you only making $100,000. Because remember, we use profits to pay our debt. If you're only making $100,000 in profit, you don't have enough money to pay the tax and then have money left over to service the debt comfortably on a normal day-to-day year. So what the bank wants to see is they want to see you make at least $125,000, you know, given this current example of coverage ratio, because that would allow you to make $125,000. Let's say $25,000 of that goes to Uncle Sam. That still leaves you with $100,000 to pay the debts, right? And the banks go back and they look at these for a number of years on it, and they want to be able to say, hey, not only are they doing this now, there's a strong history of them being able to do this. Keep in mind here that if you have other debt, you need to factor that in, right? So let's say that you have three truck loans on the business. You have a lease payment. You have a line of credit. You already have an existing loan from the buyout of it. You need to make sure that you have the profit to not only cover this new loan, but all of your other existing debt. This is where this gets tricky a lot of times. You know, generally, if a bank is going or if a business is going to get a loan, it has profit already. Right. If you don't have profit, it's you're already starting on the back foot here. However, where these deals kind of get tricky is, well, hey, you have enough profit to be able to cover this new debt that you have. But by taking on this new debt, now your profit of your business doesn't work. It's not able to cover all of the things that you have. Now, in a very simple situation, they're going to look at the business in a vacuum, right? So they're going to look at your shop and they're going to say, all right, this is what the shop needs. This is what the shop has in debt. We're comfortable with this deal. However, in a lot of situations, it gets a little bit more complicated, especially if you have a multifaceted deal where you're doing real estate and a business, or if you just have kind of a more of a complicated situation going on business and personal wise. A great example of that is let's say you have multi-locations or you own another uh, couple pieces of real estate or you have some personal investment going on. Generally, what a bank does is they take a look at what's called global cash flow. What global cash flow means is let's say I'm going to use myself as an example. I have two shops. I own three pieces of real estate. I have a rental property. Um, You know, I have a lot of stuff going on here. I don't actually own any of that stuff. Just an example. But what a bank is going to look at is they're not going to look at this and say, all right, Hunt has this one real estate that he's trying to acquire on this. Let's look at that in a vacuum to see if that works. Now, a bank is going to want to have a much broader approach to this. They're going to say, hey, Hunt has his interest in all these different businesses and all these different investments. But at the end of the day, it all funnels through to him. And so what we're going to do is we're going to do an exact similar thing of what we're doing for coverage ratio. But instead of using individual businesses, they're going to use my entire financial um, you know, portfolio to do the same idea. So they're going to say, what is all of Hunt's profit from the business, from the commercial real estate, from the investment properties? And let's lump all of that together into one bigger amount. Now that we have this bigger amount, this is what we look at is our global cash flow. Hey, what is what money does Hunt have from all sources? And then the, the way that they look at that is they look at global debt service. So if we're using money from all sources, you know, 
profits, payroll, rent, etc. This is going to be an all-encompassing approach, but that means we need to encompass all of our debt as well, which means I'm going to be factoring in my commercial debt on real estate. I'm going to be factoring any loans that I have on the businesses. I'm going to be factoring in personal debt as well, right? Whatever house I have, cars, credit card payments, boats, four-wheelers, and stuff like that. A lot of times this is where it gets very tricky for businesses because if you have a ton of personal debt, a lot of times that's taken into consideration. Hey, business is showing good profitability. Commercial real estate is showing good profitability to be able to cover what kind of debt we're looking at here. But Hunt has four four-wheelers, three boats, two RVs, uh, you know, a beach house. His personal mortgage is really expensive on it. And sometimes this blows up the deal. Honestly, I have more issues completing these deals when these personal debts come up really for two reasons. The first is I have a lot of people that are very good and very diligent with their money in the business and not so much personally. And also a lot of times the business, I have an exact idea of what kind of debt and if the business can cover it. Personal, we don't see a lot of our clients' debts. You know, I see it here and there, maybe by conversation, but I don't have a balance sheet for you personally to be able to see that stuff. Now, the bank doesn't necessarily see that either. Some of this stuff shows up on your credit report, but this is why they make you fill out that personal financial statement. That personal financial statement is essentially a profit and loss and a balance sheet for you personally. That's where they're looking for these car loans. That's where they're looking for these four-wheelers, you know, these vacation homes and stuff like that. And if you have a ton of debt, then a lot of the profit from your business is already spoken for. Hey, that's great. You're making $400,000 a year, but you're actually spending all of that or that's just going to cover your current debt already, let alone adding more debt to the situation. Speaking of net income, it's not as easy as just looking as the net income or adjusted gross income on the tax return. Obviously, if your net income or adjusted gross income on the tax return already shows enough coverage on it, then you're probably good to go. But at the very core, we're at least going to look at EBITDA when we're taking, uh, you know, when we're looking at this coverage ratio. And if you remember, we've talked about EBITDA a lot on this podcast. That's earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, right? Interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization are almost always added back in situations like this so they can really get an idea of what kind of cash do you have. Um, you know, in absence of some of these other, we'll call it accounting adjustments and thing like that. Another thing to think about is if you're buying real estate, the rent is added back or might show coverage right there. This is what we call rent replacement deals. And we'll talk about this a little bit later. I have a specific example on this one, but you know, very simply, let's say that your current rent right now is $10,000 a month. If you're going to go and you're going to buy this property and you're actually going to save money by owning it and your mortgage payment's only going to be $7,000 a month, then you have coverage right there. Hey, I've been able to prove that for the last 15 years I've been paying $10,000 a month. My mortgage to you guys is only going to be $7,000. I have, you know, almost 1.5 coverage on this. A bank is going to be really, really excited to do this deal, which is why real estate and, you know, owner occupied takeovers are probably some of the more straightforward deals that you can do. It's going to look a lot better for a bank to see a history of being able to support this. Like I said, on these rent replacement stuff, hey, I've been here for 10 years. I've been here for 15 years. Everything is look, going to look the same going forward. I'm just going to own a property, not my landlord. 
bank's going to love that, right? Hey, I can prove that this person has not only been able to do it this year, but do this year after year on a consistent basis. Generally, a bank is going to want to see three years. If you can show three years of cash flow on it, you're probably good to go. They're not going to look for year four, five, six. Because let's be realistic. What you're doing recently is much more important than what you were doing three years ago. And so if you were going to say, "Hun, is it better for me to look good now or three years ago? Of course now, right? There's a lot of things that you can argue happened in the past that aren't representative of what you're doing right now. But at the end of the day, you're trying to get a loan now. So if you don't have the cash flow in this current year, it's not going to look very good. Now, at the very least, like I said, we need to show one year. Ideally, it's the previous year, right? So we're talking about this in November of 2022. 2021 should show good cash flow. If 2021 does not show enough to support this debt, the interim financial statements better. Right. The interim financial statements are essentially saying, yeah, for 2021, we weren't quite there. Right. We were at maybe 1.1 where you guys wanted us to be at 1.25. However, if you look at my interim figures for this year, we're at 1.5, 1.6. We've made X, Y, and Z changes. And this is why we think that it's going to be a good note for us as well as for you. We all have bad days when we just turn to someone and ask, how the heck do I fix this? When that happens to you on the business side, which may not be your strong suit, you want someone quick and you want them to be clear. That's exactly what Dan Groen from Detroit Garage found when he peppered the folks at Shopware with questions about how to make the most of its shop management system. As he puts it, they continually solve the curveballs that we throw at them. With seven shops, Dan jokes that he is a demanding client, but that is a sign of a guy committed to his business. Even better, the Shopware support team met every challenge with, in Dan's words, impressive capabilities and vigor. No complaints, no hassles, just a commitment to help Dan through his day. As Dan says, we make each other stronger. Now that's a partnership that works. It is time. Visit GetShopware.com. At Repair Shop of Tomorrow, the focus is on helping shop owners unlock their full potential by specializing in an expert coaching and marketing program designed for your specific shop. Their mission is to coach the owners to focus on growing their bottom line and building a team culture within their business. At the Repair Shop of Tomorrow, a Napa Auto Care endorsed program, they train the owners and the staff what right looks like, so everyone is on the same page and driving towards a common goal. Their coaching program focuses on all aspects of your business so that the owner can step back from the daily grind and start to work on their business and not in their business. For more information about their programs, please visit them at repairshopoftomorrow.com. Now, depending on how strong the numbers are for interim figures and how bad it looked in previous years, sometimes the bank will go with interim figures a lot of times, especially if a situation where we're late in the year, a bank is probably going to want to see us close out this year. And so what would happen in a situation like that is, let's just use that same thing. Hey, interim figures are showing a 1.5 times coverage on this, which is great, but we're already here halfway through November. A bank is probably going to say, you know what? We're interested in this deal. We think that there's life into it, and we're going to kind of put uh, a bookmark in this. You only got a month and a half left. Finish out the year, finalize these taxes so that we can really judge this. If everything turns out the way we expect it to be, great. 
Now, why is that bank wanting to close out the year? It's really two things, right? The one thing is, is there is some requirements on their end on how much they can kind of put their own um, spin on these things, I guess we'll call it, right? There's some hard numbers where a lot of banks, either they set it up or the SBA sets it up. If you don't see this figure, do not pass go, do not collect $200, the deal is done, right? Another thing on it is interim figures aren't looked at the same as end of years, especially not tax returns. Let's be realistic here, right? You can put whatever you want onto a sheet of paper. You can put whatever you want into QuickBooks and no one likes to give a bank a bad picture, right? Everyone is guilty of trying to make things look as good as they possibly can. It's very important. You have one shot at this and first impressions are very important even for a bank. But one of the things that they're looking for is they're looking for that end of year tax return really because that end of year tax return proves a lot to them. Hey, it's one thing for Hunt to be able to show this profit in interim figures, but what is he actually telling the federal government and what is he actually signing on this tax return? Now, again, you can make up stuff, you can put whatever you want on there, but they have a lot more level of trust because a CPA is going to be signing this. I am not knowingly going to file a fraudulent tax return to inflate someone's income so they can get a loan. Believe me, I've been asked in the past to do this. But that's a hard and fast rule, right? That's not being tricky. That's not getting into the gray area. That's fraud, right? And so cut and dry there. And also, you know, you're not going to want to lie to the federal government either, right? If you're overstating your income, not only are, you know, kind of breaking the law in a number of aspects, you're paying way more tax than you would ideally want to. And so if you're close to the end of the year, a lot of times that they will make you wait, but let's say that you're early in the year, previous two years were really close, not quite there. They'll probably be good with the interim figures as long as everything else checks out. Now, like I said, cash flow is probably the biggest thing, right? Generally in a situation, if you don't have cash flow, I don't care what you have on collateral. Banks are not going to do this deal. However, if you don't have the cash flow on it, you can get away with projections sometimes. Now, projections for a conventional bank, not an SBA loan, are not super common. However, projections for SBA loans are extremely common. Uh, I should say extremely common, but we see them a good bit. And so how it would work with a projection is really kind of two different ways. So let's say that you have a business right now. It doesn't show the current cash flow. It doesn't show the current profitability. But this loan is going to allow you to drastically change your business right? This is where projections would come in. Hey, I know that the business right now cannot support this elevated debt service, but the reason I'm getting this loan is to double my square footage of my business. That's going to be able to double my sales, double my gross profit, and significantly improve my net profit as well as coverage ratio. By adding these four bays onto my property, this is what my future sales are going to look like for the next three years. Right. Very legitimate thing on why projections come in and why it's so important. Hey, obviously it doesn't work right now, but I'm going to make major changes to this that will make it work for you. Another thing is if you look at something like an acquisition, right? Let's say that you're taking over a struggling business or a non-performing business, then projections would come in there as well. Hey, you know what? I have three locations. I want to buy this fourth location. I'm pretty much getting it for a cut rate price. But even that, they've never shown profit on it. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to change in this business so that not only it's profitable, but it's going to be able to cash flow enough to service the debt. So 
You know, if you're sitting here right now and you're like, well, hey, I don't have coverage. Is there no hope from me? No. Some banks will look at projections. Some of them take uh, them into a lot more consideration than others. But it's just a possibility that I'm throwing out there. So there is always a lot of focus on cash flow because that is the one thing that you almost always have to have other than projections. Um, You know, if you don't have it between projections or the historical financial, no bank in the primary market is going to touch this. And when I mean primary market, it means regular banks that you hear about. There is a secondary market that we're not going to get in today, which is commonly referred to as loan sharks, asset based lenders. There's people out there that will loan you money. Are you going to get a good rate? Definitely not. Are you going to get good terms? Definitely not. But given kind of weird situations, there's a time and a place for people like this. However, banks, no matter who it is, are also concerned about collateral as well. So collateral in this example simply means what assets do you have to pledge against a loan in case the bank has to collect, right? So let's talk about real estate. What kind of collateral is in a real estate deal? Obviously, the real estate itself, right? Commercial property is no different than residential property. A bank is going to always like to do real estate deal versus anything else because they're never going to give you 100% of what you're paying for their real estate. So immediately they feel pretty comfortable because they're like, well, hey, Hunt's buying a property for a million dollars. He's putting $200,000 down. He owes us $800,000. But on our books, we have a million dollars in collateral. We're going to feel really good on that deal and we're going to be extremely happy with it. However, on the flip side of it, if you're looking to buy a shop, shops have almost no collateral, right? So let's say we're buying a shop for a million dollars. Realistically, that shop is going to have maybe $200,000 in collateral, right? A little bit of inventory. It has some equipment, but that equipment's all been depreciated. And again, a bank doesn't know what to do with auto repair equipment. So they don't look at these like it has a whole lot of collateral. So generally in a situation with something like a shop, we have to kind of get into other areas to be able to satisfy the collateral. Obviously, the easiest thing on getting collateral is going to be cash, you know, whether that's cash that you can put down on the deal or cash that's showing on your balance sheet. Right. So let's say that that same example, we're going to buy that shop for a million dollars. We put two hundred thousand dollars down on it. You know, it doesn't really have a whole lot of assets on it. So the bank doesn't really like that deal anymore because it doesn't have any collateral behind it. However, if I can prove that my business has, you know, six hundred, eight hundred thousand dollars in cash reserve, then a bank's going to say, "Okay, great. Hey, even if Hunt screws up this acquisition, the business goes south on it. Yeah, that business doesn't have a whole lot of assets itself, but he has a lot of cash, whether it's business or personal, as we'll get into next. A bank's going to like this deal. Now, what comes in generally on almost all these deals that we see, unless you have a very, very strong kind of commercial outlook on this, is what's called personal guarantees. So what a personal guarantee is just that, right? I'm personally guaranteeing that my business is going to pay for this debt. And so if we're using that situation as a shop of, hey, I have a shop, that's my sole source of income, and I'm also going to personally guarantee that I'm going to pay this loan. That means that if my repair shop goes under, goes bankrupt, defaults, whatever, I can't just walk away from that loan. Now, instead of my business owing the bank money, I personally owe the business or I personally owe the bank that money. So my personal reserves, my personal investment, my personal real estate, any of my personal 
assets are now pledged to that bank. So if I default on my business loan, you know, within reason, they can come start taking personal asset, cars, cash, my house, uh, vacation houses, whatever you might have. Personal guarantees are something that a bank will almost always ask for. And depending on how strong your financial position is, you can sometimes get out of it, sometimes cannot. If possible, obviously, we don't want a personal guarantee on this, right? I don't want to risk my personal assets for a business deal. I don't care what it is. I don't want my personal stuff to be uh, related to this. But like I said, sometimes it's unavoidable. However, even if it's unavoidable when you get that deal, it's something that I would still be advocating for down the road. Hey, I know you guys don't feel comfortable with this deal, and this personal guarantee is what makes you guys feel more comfortable with this deal. But five years down the road, when we maybe get in a better equity position, I'm going to be asking to remove that personal guarantee. I don't want that attached. So what happens if you don't have collateral and maybe don't even have the cash flow? This is where SBA comes in. Right. SBA is extremely, extremely common in this industry, especially for the shop side of things. Real estate as well, but shops, you know, acquisitions, buyouts, and stuff like that almost are always SBA. But what is the difference? So generally, it is a little bit easier to get SBA, and the banks will also try to push this more. The reason why the SBA is a little bit easier and the banks will try to push this is because a bank does not have as much exposure on this. The reason is, is is how the process works for an SBA. So if I go to a bank and I say, all right, I want to put money down on a piece of property. It's again going to be a million dollar deal. Then a bank, if I'm going to SBA, is going to say, well, we want $100,000 down. Generally, a down payment for an SBA is about 10%. Generally, for a conventional, it's about 20%. So what is actually going on behind the scenes is Wells Fargo is not giving me $900,000. Well, they are, but there's a catch to it. So Wells Fargo is still going to be the one that's giving me the money. But if it's an SBA deal, that means the SBA is behind the scenes guaranteeing up to 90% of this deal, right? So if the SBA is okay with this, Wells Fargo got 10% down on it, which remains leaves 90% out there that I owe. But if the SBA is okay with the deal, then they're guaranteeing to Wells Fargo that even if I default on this, they're going to cover that remaining 90%. So now the banks not only have the cash flow and collateral thing taken care of, they also almost have a risk-free investment because they're like, well, hey, we got our 10%. If Hunt doesn't pay, we don't really care because the SBA is going to give us our money. Right. So think about the SBA as kind of essentially like mortgage insurance. Right. If you buy a house and you don't have the money to put down, you have to pay mortgage insurance. And that mortgage insurance is the same thing of, hey, if this person defaults, we're going to be able to kind of get our money back and use a claim on this insurance policy. Now, that's the positive thing on SBA, right? It's going to make banks feel more comfortable. Generally, it's going to be their first thing. Banks don't like risk. So if they can get the SBA involved, they will generally try to do this. However, just like mortgage insurance, and as you can imagine here, if the banks have lower risk, that means that someone else is taking on the risk, which is the SBA, and the SBA wants to be paid for it. So SBA generally has higher interest rates. If anything, they're usually the same, but usually SBA is a couple points or not a couple points, maybe half a point to one point above its kind of uh, comparative conventional loan. Another thing is SBA has what they call guarantee fees, 
very similar to mortgage insurance. It's saying, hey, we're guaranteeing this for you, but we're not doing it for free. Sometimes that's front loaded, right? You owe a bunch of money up front that you have to prepay the SBA fees. A lot of times it's amortized over the life of the loan and paid back as you pay the note back. So which one should you do? Generally, if you can afford it, we want to do conventional. And this is very common on real estate. I tell people, if you have the 20% down on it, why are we doing SBA? Let's get rid of the fees. Let's get a better interest rate and just do it. But sometimes you want to preserve the cash, right? Because SBA lets you put less money down. And so that would be a reason why I would look at SBAs. If you want to kind of preserve preserve your cash on it, then SBA might be an option. Also, sometimes SBA runs some really weird specials, um, special rates, you know, locked in pricing for specific areas and stuff like that, where you can actually get some more flexibility, lower talent payment, and also lower interest rates. But a normal course of action, conventional is generally going to be the better choice. But talk to a good banker, right? They'll be able to understand your position, be able to guide you what's going to be best for you. So let's talk about rates, right? And if I was doing this podcast in January of 2022, it's going to be completely different. And if you're listening to this into 2023, all of these are going to be completely different as well. But let's talk in general terms. So generally, the lowest rates that we see on deals are for owner-occupied real estate. You have good collateral there, right? Real estate, banks like that. Also, you're the owner and the operator of it, right? So you own the real estate, you own the operating entity, so you control your own destiny. In the past, let's say January, we usually saw those rates between 4 and 5%. Now, we're getting 8 up to 10%. I have not seen one hit double digits yet. But in the next four to six months, I imagine we'll start to see a couple coming through that high. Now, another one is business acquisition. So business acquisition is kind of on the other end of the spectrum. Not a whole lot of collateral, a lot of uncertainty there. And it's riskier, right? Riskier means a bank's going to be one to pay higher in order for taking on that. So generally, rates are about one or two points higher than a comparatively side real estate deal for a business acquisition. Now, the last thing on rates is really two ideas behind it, is floating or fixed rates. So conventional generally has fixed rates, while SBA generally does not do fixed rates and they have floating rates. Now, this is general, right? I have SBA that have fixed rates. I have conventionals that have floating rates as well. But generally, this is what it looks like between the two of them. Now, in both situations, usually what they do is on a, a floating rate, they link it to what's called prime. We talked about this in the past. Prime is, you know, a kind of industry standard here, directly related to what the Federal Reserve is doing. But they'll do prime plus. And what does prime plus mean? So prime plus means that you're going to take the prime rate plus a certain figure to come up with your actual monthly rate. And so in a situation like today, let's say that your rate is prime plus 2.25. Prime today is 7% and plus 2.25 means that you're going to add another two and a quarter percentage points to this, meaning that your rate is going to be 9.25%. Now, all banks do this a little bit differently. Does that rate go up every month? Do they look at it on the quarter? Do they look at it on the annual basis? And also a lot of times there's a floor and ceiling to this, right? Because they'll say, all right, it's a floating rate, but the max rate is nine. The minimum rate is five to kind of hedge not only their risk, but also your risk as well so that it doesn't get too out of hand. 
On more complicated deals and larger dollar amounts, there's also something called an interest rate swap. So an interest rate swap gets extremely complicated. It's essentially a derivative that you buy to lock in a rate, right? So you're saying, hey, I have a floating rate, but I'm going to buy this interest rate swap to almost essentially make it look like a fixed rate. We don't see these very common, but essentially I want to throw that out there of saying, hey, if you really want to fix that rate and they won't give you a fixed rate, there's other things that you can kind of do. When possible, I always like to do fixed rates. It just makes it easier. I know what I'm getting into. I don't have to worry about interest rate swings. And it's very hard to forecast. Like we talked about, if we were talking about this time last year, who cares about interest rates? And now over the last year, they've doubled. No one was expecting it. Um, and obviously, if you have a floating rate, it could drastically affect your business and your cash flow um, on a short term and long term basis. So how long will they give you a loan for? Right. So for business acquisition or asset purchases, generally, they're looking at a five to seven year deal. Banks want to get their money back and are looking at shorter term assets there. And kind of to go back on the rate thing for business acquisition or asset purchases for five to seven years, very common to see a fixed rate. It's not very long. It's easy for them to forecast and banks feel comfortable kind of locking in that rate. However, for real estate, banks will go out to 25 years. Um, some of them a little bit shorter than that, but 25 years is generally the long, longer length of time. And if you're doing an SBA that has asset and real estate in it, as long as more than half the deal is real estate, they will actually wrap up the entire deal for 25-year amortization. That's one of the big things about SBA, which people like, right? Combining deals and the SBA will look at it as a package deal and give you the longer amortization. Obviously, the longer the life of the loan, the lower your monthly payment is. However, the longer the length of the loan, the more interest you're paying. So there's, you know, positives and negatives to all of this. You know, for something like real estate, just because they are amortizing this loan for 25 years does not mean that your loan is good for 25 years. So what it means to amortize a loan over 25 years is just saying, hey, the payments that you're making will pay off this loan over the course of 25 years. But it's very common for these commercial loans to only be good for five years. So what that would look in the situation is they're going to say, hey, I'm going to give you a loan for 25 years, but essentially we're going to re-underwrite this after five years. So at the end of the five years, if you had a good five years, everything looks good. Cash flow looks good. Collateral looks good. You know, real estate's appreciating on this. They very likely will just re-up your loan, maybe readjust the interest rate or something like that. But they have to look at it every five years. However, there are situations where if you don't look good, business has been struggling. Yeah, you have that loan for five years. But at the end of the five years, if you've been losing money, the underlying assets have been depreciating on it. There's a chance that a bank could call this and say, hey, you better give us our money or maybe renegotiate it with not as good of terms or maybe some more hooks in you like personal guarantee where they require, require other outside collateral to make them feel better. Right. In a situation like this, you would be locked into either meeting those demands or going out and refinancing it. It's not uncommon. I guess it is uncommon for real estate to be generally 25 years with no sort of uh, no sort of uh, balloon or look at period. Um, but we do see it every now and then. 
All banks are a little bit different. You know, terms, rates, stuff like this is all stuff that I'm comparing when I'm looking to uh, work with a bank or looking to work with a banker. So to kind of wrap all this up, I want to kind of use what we have learned in this episode to kind of go down through three very common examples. So the first one is buying the property that you're currently occupying, right? This is the most common deal that I have. Hey, Hunt, I've been in this building for 10 years. Landlord's finally ready to sell it. I have the money to do so. Let's. What does this deal look like? So very simple. First and foremost, I always say we need to at least have 10% down on this deal. Right. If you have 20 percent, then great. We're going to be able to go conventional, but you need at least 10 percent down if we're doing most of these deals. All right, Hunt, I got that. Check. What's next? We need to obviously show cash flow. Right. Most situations, your rent is going to be higher than your future mortgage payment. So it probably already works like we talked about before. If it is going to be more than your current rent payment that you've been paying for 10 years, you need to have profits or prove that you're going to be able to afford that. So if you have 10 or 20% down and you have the cash flow to support this, a bank is going to be you know, really clamoring for this deal. It's a perfect example of what they're trying to do here. Now, another example would be buying another location, right? Whether you're buying the real estate or you're just buying the business assets of another location, you know, a bank's going to look at this very similarly. But obviously, if you're buying the assets of another business, it's not as great because it doesn't have the hard assets or doesn't have the collateral on this. And a lot of times, if you're buying another location without the real estate, you're almost always going to go to SBA so that the bank can feel more comfortable about the collateral side of things. Now, in a cash flow perspective, if the shump, if the company shows a good profit, you are to support this, you're good to go. And generally they do because remember, businesses are sold as a three-time multiple and you're paying back this loan over seven years. So almost always they show a positive cash flow in order to cover their own debt. I always tell people, hey, don't get too nervous. SBA and banks in general generally like shops and especially that they've been able to do so well over COVID. They're very hot and we usually don't have a whole lot of trouble. However, if this is a struggling business that you're trying to take over, then you're going to be able to have to show the profits either in a projection format of what you're going to change or be able to prove that your current business can not only cover its current debt as well as some or all of the debt of this future property as well. The bank doesn't really care about the other company's balance sheet because it has nothing to do with them. Hey, it's great that they have a ton of cash. We don't really care if this other business has no cash. You're not buying their cash or their liabilities. It really more has to do with what you're doing and their profit and loss statement, not necessarily what their uh, assets and liabilities are in a you know grander scheme. Some of the stuff that they can are concerned about, but the most part, if you can satisfy the other things, it doesn't really matter. So the last one is, and really the where I got this idea for this episode, is selling your business to a key employee and sometimes an outsider, but generally a key employee kind of gives people a little bit more concern because that employee knows what you have. You guys have a handshake agreement, and a lot of times people don't do an official valuation on it. They say, hey, I'm good with this figure. My general managers go with this figure. Is a bank going to be okay with this deal? And it really is the same situation as you know buying another location. Collateral is always going to be tricky, right? But SBA likes these deals. And as long as you have that 10% down, you're good to go. 
And if you don't have that 10% down or that key employee doesn't have that 10% down, there's some situations where the owner can pick up that 10%. Hey, I'm selling this business for a million bucks. My general manager doesn't have the cash to throw down on it. I'm going to hold back 10% or 100,000. The SBA or this bank is going to take 900,000. The SBA is happy because they have some down payment. Uh, obviously, the key employee is happy because you know they don't have to come out of pocket. And you as an owner can get your deal done, pick up a little bit of interest. Very, very common to do that. And cash flow. Again, just like the um, just like we were talking about above, they don't really care about the valuation too much. Valuations are very subjective, and essentially the way that they look at it is, hey, two parties have agreed to this price. It must be fair because this is kind of what they're doing. Now, within reason, right? They look at this and they say, this is so outrageous. How did you come up with this? You could have some issues. But at the end of the day, if it cash flows and the business can support the debt on it, they're probably not going to ask about the valuation very much at all. Now, the SBA does do valuations for acquisitions, but they're not worth the paper that they're written on usually, right? They're very, very poor. um, And a lot of times they magically come in very close to the asking price. Um, The example that I give is it's a lot of times like an appraisal for a property that you're selling. Magically, that number comes in right just above what that note is, maybe sometimes a little bit less, right? The free market is the best indicator on what something is worth, which is why they'll always fall back to, hey, does it cash flow? Hey, might be they might not have got a great deal. It might be overpaying for that. We don't really care. right? As long as they can cash flow on this, as long as we can get our money back, that's between those two. I hope that this has given you some insight into your options here. And obviously, this is not the end-all be-all of what banks look at, but these are the core issues. If you can satisfy these core issues, most everything else will be just fine. Best way to prepare yourself for a bank is first and foremost to make as much money as you possibly can, right? Banks want to lend to people that have money, not people that need money, and they also want to see a strong track record. But you also need to take into your personal debt, right? Your personal finances, your credit score, your business experience, and a lot of other things that go into the decision. It is so important that you have a good banker that you trust and understands what you're trying to do. I cannot stress this enough. Banking is a relationship. It is not a commodity. You need a good banker, especially if you have a little bit more complicated deal. This is who's going to go to battle for you and who's going to explain to the bank why you need this money and why it's a good deal for them. If they don't understand your business and information is not presented in a correct format, you don't have a chance. Most tricky deals that I'm involved with take some massaging. They take some brainstorming. Hey, what if we do this? Well, what if we actually refinance this one too? move this loan around, right? We have to get creative here, sometimes with cash flow and sometimes with collateral. And if you have an ally that's going to go to bat for you, then you're probably going to be able to make this deal happen. However, if you have a banker that's just looking at the transaction, hey, here's the financials. I'm going to try and give these financials to loan committee on it and they don't have the information to answer the questions or answer them in the correct manner, then you have no chance, right? So please, please, please make sure that you trust your banker. Even if you have a bank right now that you don't really like, don't go do another loan with them, right? Find someone that can not only understand your business, but it's going to be an asset for you to grow, expand, and kind of meet your goals of what you're trying to do here. Like always, please share this with friends. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, 
please shoot me an email at podcast at parmelis.com. Thanks again for listening on the Aftermarket Radio Network. You can find all shows on the aftermarketradionetwork.com and on your favorite podcast listening app. So thanks again for joining me on Business by the Numbers. Stay safe out there, and I will talk to you all next week. You've been listening to Business by the Numbers with Hunt Demarest on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Hunt on your favorite podcast listening app. Let him know what you'd like him to cover. His email is in the show notes. Hunt is all for advancing the aftermarket.